This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast about race, politics, religion, and all the things with me, Adam Smith. We've all watched the viral videos capturing white women weaponizing their whiteness and womanhood to sick police on Black folks at barbecues, birdwatching, or swimming in the neighborhood pool. These incidents have become so prevalent that Black Twitter began calling these women Karens. But it isn't new. Carolyn Bryant Donham, a white woman whose claims against then-teenager Emmett Till resulted in his lynching, was recently not indicted by a Mississippi grand jury despite evidence that she lied in 1955 when she claimed that the Chicago teen whistled at and touched her. But what about Bryant's husband and the other men who abducted, tortured, and murdered the 14-year-old? So white women get a whole name for their depravity, which has been happening since black bodies were brought to the U.S. in 1619, yet white men who use their women as tools of racism, misogyny, and anti-blackness are seldom named or held accountable. Today, we're going to talk about the uncomfortable realities of Karens and the husbands, fathers, brothers who have done nothing next to nothing in the DEI space and seemingly have more to learn than anyone with Dr. Ann Fibbs. Ann built a successful diversity, equity, and inclusion leadership program at the University of Minnesota with a focus on emotional intelligence. As director of education at the University of Minnesota, she is responsible for developing and implementing their successful certificate program, a series of 10 workshops designed to increase capacity for diversity and inclusion work across every part of the institution. And earned her PhD in philosophy and feminist studies from the University of Minnesota. And she is the founder and president of Strategic Diversity Initiatives. And welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. One of the things I just wanted to get into can you talk a little bit about your work and that of so many white women and how often? Do you see in that work, do you see cisgendered white men? Um, are they present? Are they absent? Talk a little bit about your work. And then do you see or who you see that are also doing the same work with you? Sure. So by way of a little bit of background, I identify as queer or lesbian. I also identify as white, middle class, grew up speaking English. So spent a lot of time, honestly, kind of talking about my marginalized identities as a as a lesbian, as a queer woman. It took me a lot longer and I just turned 60. So it took me a lot longer to start talking about my privilege as a social justice activist, as a DEI practitioner to say, what does it mean to be white doing this work? So, you know, I wish I had been talking this way about race back in when I was 30, but you know, we're, we're all on a journey, especially those of us are white going to be on a journey around race for our entire lives. In terms of the works, I've done a lot of work in kind of feminist circles and queer circles, uh, uh, queer activism. And then in the last six years, have my own DEI company. So now I'm I'm out there working with people in companies, in higher ed, in nonprofits, in healthcare, all kinds of organizations, honestly, working with a lot of people trying to move this forward. And, and some of the research suggests that um, uh, women in, in like this is some some work from like 
uh, corporate stuff like Lean In and McKinsey, that women, uh, especially white women, are more likely to be doing DEI work than, say, white men. I mean, people of color and or native um, who are, you know, of all genders, male, female, non-binary, et cetera, folks with disabilities, folks who are queer. And then in terms of gender, a lot of white women. And so I know right now there's a lot of talk. In fact, I, I just learned about a new kind of documentary about Karen and just an article I just read in Forbes about why are so many white women upset about being called white women. And it's interesting because reading that article made me realize that I have no problem with being called white. <laughs> and that's a part of the journey of any white person who's going to try to be actively anti-racist. I'm not going to say I am anti-racist. That's for someone else to judge me, but I'm trying to be actively anti-racist. And for any of us on that journey, the part of where we need to get to is that, of course, we're white. And of course, our whiteness has profoundly impacted every part of our lives. And that's, it's a journey to get there. Again, I wish I had gotten there when I was 25, but I wasn't there when I was 25. And it's important that those of us who do get there as white people don't turn around and kind of trash the other white people who aren't there yet, because that happens too. the kind of I'm more woke, so I'm better than you. <laughs> that kind of I call it social justice high school, not helpful. But um, so so we're, we're those of us who are white are all on this journey. And I think I have no problem with someone saying I'm going to describe you as white and that that being described by my racial identity is new for white people. And so that's challenging. So that's some of what I was reading in the Forbes article. And, you know, this this pushback from white women who say, why are you always calling me white? I have no problem with that white part. It's the putting the white and the women together that's been a bit of, that I wanna challenge a little bit in the sense that there's a lot of focus then on white women as kind of the problem of racism instead of just white people in general and more specifically white men. And I think we need to see that we need that gendered lens in how we understand white supremacy and the role white people play in upholding white supremacy, which is complex, which is, you know, people of color, native people have been talking about for hundreds of years. Um, but it's but one of the things I'm interested in is, you know, when when we look at, as I mentioned, that research from say McKenzie and Lean in that in, in say the corporate space, and I think this is also true, quite honestly, in higher ed, in nonprofits, that a lot of the people who are white, who are doing DEI work are white women. So in some ways, that's probably part of the reason we're seeing this discussion about white women. But in some ways, I worry that what we're doing is leaving out the calling out of white men. So I wanna be real clear, white people need to be called out. We need to be held accountable. And it's painful work, it's traumatizing. White people need to figure out how to do it with each other so to take the burden off of BIPOC folks. But I want us to also be careful of what might be misogyny that underlies some of the ways white women get talked about. And it's tricky because to say, mm. you know, I mean, when we say, well, I'm talking about black people, it's hard to imagine I'm talking about black people and there's not anti-blackness in that. I have to be really careful. Like just the default in America to talk about black people right. is anti-blackness. And I would argue the default in talking about women is misogyny. The default in talking about queer folks is homophobia by transphobia. So, so we need to interrogate that as we talk, because when we put white and women together, we're talking about both a kind of privileged and a marginalized status. So we mm. need some nuance there. And that, 
that's a really important point. And I don't know if this was what you wanted me to get to in the first question, but it's where I went. No, it it, it is it is exactly where we needed to go because the reality is for whatever reason, white women and whether it's DE&I work or it's K-12 work or it's social work, and we'll get into those things, or higher ed student affairs work, white women are the white people who are in that work, doing the work on behalf of or for the people. And so you're you're exactly right, and I agree, is that you know, you're giving white men a pass, and oftentimes white women then get labeled Karens because of yeah, proximity. Right. And that's our own misogyny too, and saying white women, yes, they may have more power than people of color in some ways, but at the end of the day, they're not the ones wielding all of the power. And so white men have kind of skirted these issues dating back to Emmett Till, right? Where we almost get to a point and they should have indicted the accuser of Emmett Till in Mississippi, but they won't because they say she's too old. But what about the men, right? right? We all right. know about the woman. But what about the men? Because she, what what the story is, is yes, she said whatever she said happened, happened. And then the, the folks got riled up. But at some point they brought Emmett back to the house. And she then said, no, 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 I was making it up, fellas. Come on now, back off. And they still went on to torture him and lynch him, right? So talk a little bit about how, as a white woman in the work, right? how you do this by bringing other people in white men and other people along, right? Rather than just having it be on, like you said, DE&I work, justice work, work for the people, what I call foot wash and table tip and work. The only people in that space with people of color, for the most part, are white women. How do we bring white men along and how do we hold them accountable for being yeah, absent? Great questions. Great questions. I think, Adam, when you and I first talked about this, I, I said, you know, I want to talk about Karen when there's a, when there's a, um, what's the word we use for white men? So, so why is there a word Karen? And the idea is like, well, we had these Karens who, you know, called the, the, you know, called the cops twice on the, on the bird watcher in Central Park, but it's not like, there's all sorts of white men who have done plenty of horrific, much more horrific things, calling police and, and calling security on people of color. And they don't have a name like Harvey or Chet or whatever that might be. Right. So, <laughs> um, although it's interesting, I, when I train, I often, I, I sometimes use the word, the names Harvey or Chet to refer to like white guys who are kind of clueless. Uh, and, and I, I had a white guy come up to me, after a training, he stuck out his hand and he said, I'm your Harvey, which was very interesting. He said, I'm your Harvey. And you got, gave me a lot to think about. We were, it was a, actually a, this particular example had, was around sexism, but, but I thought it was great that he was willing to kind of see that like, oh, there's some of that behavior in me and you gave me stuff to think about. So part of what I try to do, and this is, I think, really important for, for white people to to get is that I, I try to talk about racism as much as I can because white people are taught either not to do or not, we're not taught how to do it. And in a way that's effective, in a way that doesn't 
recenter us. And I'm sure all of the ways I'm going to mention are ways that I F it up. I mean, we all do. We make mistakes. So I'm not saying I'm so, I'm some perfect example of it. But what the feedback I get some t- occasionally when I'm training is from folks of color who are like, wow, you know, it was nice to hear someone else continually call out racism and talk about white supremacy. And we need to get used to white people doing that. And we need to, to um, I do agree with you that the people who are in that work with people of color, with people with disabilities, with queer folks doing that DEI work, Jedi work, whatever people are calling it now, um, are folks with marginalized identities to some degree. And we forget that white women still have a marginalized identity. They face race, sexism and misogyny every day, right? And so, um, so that's the big kind of million dollar question or whatever, uh, you know, is how to get people who have significant amounts of privilege to start to, to show up in that space. And I've met people like that. I've met white men who are cisgender, who are heterosexual, who don't live with a disability, middle-class, sometimes they're leaders, sometimes not. They're few and far between. There's nowhere near as many of them, but I've met them and they have to be prepared to be seen as the one with probably the most amount of privilege in the room. That's just part of the work that they need to do. But they, but the big, you know, hump, if you will, for all of us who have privilege to get over and the more privilege you have, the bigger the mountain it is, is that this is my work. That is the single, I think, biggest mountain to get over Mm. because privilege tells you it's not your work. What I say is when you can say, oh, this racism work is really hard. I can't do it anymore. That's when you know you're white, right? Because that's right. Just like yeah, just like so. when misogyny work is too hard, yeah, or homophobia, sexism work is too hard, you know, it's no different when you were originally talking about being a recovering <laughs> racist, right? Or being a recovering like we to be anti-racist yeah. is to be yeah. in recovery, period. You know, I grew up in a family of addiction. It it wasn't my work to be clean. That was my dad's work and my uncle's work and my aunt's work. My work was to hold them accountable and to say, you know what? For me to take care of me, you're only going to be in my life as if you decide to get in recovery with me. And recovery never ends. It's a never-ending process. Um, I have two family members who were clean for 15 and 18 years, respectively, and they both went back to using. So it is all about, you know, working in those margins of discomfort. And I think that's what privilege does, right? We were I was talking to some folks in higher ed and they were talking towards the end of the academic term and everyone's exhausted and all these things. And when I talked to the people of color, they said, yeah, I'm tired, but but I'm kind of fulfilled and enriched too, right? Because you have the privilege of working through some of the struggle and also doing the work because you almost feel mm. a calling to it, right? And when you ask the people of color that are working in student success and are working in student affairs, it's always this calling thing. It isn't, I'm doing this because I wanted a title. I'm doing this because somebody saw me when I was an undergrad and I want, or no one saw me and by the grace of God, right? And I'm going to be for someone else what I didn't have. One of the pieces that is really interesting to me is how often 
the tears and discomfort of white women have been used to do harm, right? Because the ability to kind of well up some tears and be fragile or be upset, right? What happened? Can you talk a little bit about how patriarchy and misogyny has left some white women ill-equipped to effectively communicate and how embracing some intersectional feminism can give not just women, but men, the skills they need to have some conversations yeah. that are uncomfortable. Wow, that's a, that's a big question. Very interesting too. Let me just back up and say one thing. I, I think uh, your analogy to, to addiction was really interesting. And um, I, I think about how powerful it is to just as a white person get comfortable with saying, I'm racist. Of course I'm racist. Like, how could I possibly not be racist growing up in America and in the US? And yet we contort ourselves not to say that. And so we we stop the conversation way at the very beginning. Because if we can't say that, if you can't come into the meeting, I'm thinking about your analogy and say, I'm an alcoholic, well, then there's no recovery. So if I can't say I'm racist, there's no recovery. So I just have to say, that was really interesting. Got my mind, my wheels spinning about the idea of being in recovery from racism and then being in relationship with people of color. I really, I really, I really like that. And I think part of what we need is ways for white people to find ways in to do that. I'm not, that's not the work of people of color to create that for white people. It's the work of white people to do it for ourselves, but to find a way to go in and instead of getting obsessed with how we're going to F it up and make mistakes to say, okay, you know, um, I guess, I guess I can do this work. One of the things I will answer your question, but I'm just going to finish this thought. One of the things that, that I say that is most likely I, I will see someone when I'm training, write it down is something my wife who's a therapist says, which is trust is not built in perfection. It's built in repair. And it's very, very helpful for those of us doing this work to say, <sighs> if we expect to go into this work, whether it's race work, whether it's any kind of work and be perfect, we'll, we'll fail. So we have to know, and that's the big, that's part of the hump too, is like, how do I, how do I go in and do something I know I'm going to mess up? That's hard, you know? Well, but that's also, that's also a level of privilege, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, people of color, shoot, I'll hear from old heads. Mm -hmm. We got to work twice as hard to get just as far or people who were depressed after Will Smith slapped Chris Rock because that affected the whole community. That is just anti-Blackness and racism. Stop it. Okay. Donald Trump hasn't affected every (laughs) white person. They're saying that ain't got nothing to do with me. Right. Or slavery or 1619 or lynchings in Duluth. But people have profited by those things. So when you say those kind of actions are a reflection on you, that's just racism coming out. And I think the pieces that you're talking about of being able to first off to admit, but also I have not, I used to work when I worked at Metro State in the Twin Cities, I had um, Native American um, students of color, retention services, women and gender, um, our LGBTQ resource center. And I screwed it up all the time. Somebody said to me one day, you know, this person is two spirit. I was like, Ooh, what is that? That's cool. 
right? And so I want to know, but it's privilege to think I always got to be right. And I always got to be comfortable. It's okay. I have never seen a woman of color, a person of color, a queer person say when somebody's heart is in the space, oh, you said this wrong and I was offended. I, I don't see a lot of that. You can tell if somebody is doing their work, because like you said so eloquently, it's their work. It's not my work. And so when I ask questions or I mess something up, um, I had a colleague um, who was named Cindy Ann, and Cindy Ann's um, pronoun was they. And at that point in my journey, I had a hard time calling Cindy Ann they. So I, and I was living in Alabama, so I would say, yes, ma'am. And I then defaulted to just saying Cindy Ann. Now I can call Cindy Ann they, but at the time I couldn't. Cindy Ann gave right. me so much grace. It didn't stop me from talking and working it right. through with Cindy Ann, right? She knew, right. She, they knew I loved her, but that level of privilege as a straight guy right. to say, well, I'm uncomfortable with it, so I'm just not going to even work through it. That's my stuff I need to work through. Cindy Ann gave me all the grace in the world because she knew my right, heart was in right. the right place. Yeah, absolutely. So can you talk a little bit about how that question about giving white women, first off, acknowledging that white women, for the most part, are ill-equipped to have some of these uncomfortable conversations and even more ill-equipped to kind of help others talk through some of these intersectional feminist issues and have the skills they need to have conversations that are uncomfortable to the point we can make them comfortable. Yeah. So let me, let me reframe a little bit. And I just want to say, I think this is important. All white people, not just white women, all white people are ill-equipped to talk about race. All white people are raised with ideas that we are raceless, that our races doesn't matter, it doesn't impact us. And so that is very much true of white men and white women and white people of all genders, um, gender identities. So let's talk about the complex, the complexity of adding in the fragility and the emotion. And so what's interesting is here you have a society that I believe does not value emotional work, right? So let's just take the fact that if we talk about something like emotional intelligence, we call it a soft skill. And we know what, by, by things like hard science and soft science that hard, which is associated with maleness, right? Rationality, that's better, right? This is all like feminism 101, right? So what we do as a society is we leave the emotional work primarily to women. And this is true for women of color. Uh, this is true for white women, right? We leave that emotional work. So then you get white women who have been trained to be open about how they, to some degree, like more than white men anyway, to be open about how they feel, right? So white men, and we have toxic masculinity, so men of all races, but including white men, have a very narrow image of, of like a very narrow frame in which they have, you know, they're allowed to express emotion. It's primarily around, a lot around anger and competitiveness, right? And maybe some love or certainly, but, but, you know, not, not a lot of nuance and, and that's changing slowly, but there's still an awful lot of toxic masculinity. So now a white woman comes into a space and is listening to women of color or people of color talk about racism. 
and is starting to feel like starting to learn that 400 plus years of overt racism is absolutely undeniably horrific and then starts to feel it, right? And so what I like to say is, I, I hope to God white people start sobbing about racism, but that's different than sobbing in public about it. But what I mean by sobbing is, what I, what I, what I wanna push against is this idea that when, when someone feels something deeply about racism, a white person, I should say, that we automatically think that's automatically manipulative. I'm not convinced it's automatically manipulative. However, it could, is, it, is it inappropriate in a space with women of color and people of color to have everything center back on you? Absolutely. But I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater. The fact that white people and in particular white women are feeling things about racism, that is a good thing. We have to have that because to me, it just makes sense. But let me just be very clear about why that is. Because on a very deep emotional, personal level, we have to care about ending the trauma and hurt and pain and and everything about racism. So we got to feel it. We it cannot mm. just reside up here. We've got to feel it. So the That's idea right. that I'm going to learn about ra racism that my family never taught me, that history books didn't teach me, when I start to hear about even the lived experiences of of people of color that I that are my colleagues, that are my friends, and they start telling me, you know, I was followed around in the store. I just think about all the stories that are told. Like there, there's something messed up when we say that shouldn't hit us emotionally. It should hit us emotionally and it should hit white men emotionally and not just white women. Now, that's that right. said, let me be clear. That's my job to take care of myself as a white person and to not have it turn into a kind of white fragility manipulative thing, which it has plenty of times. I'm very clear about that, but I just don't, I want to tease those things apart to say, Let's not throw out the emotion. Let's throw out the ways that it manipulates and recenters whiteness because it has, and that's a problem. But I, I'll just, can I share a story? Please, please do. I, I was asked to come in and help with a situation that was in a, in a, a kind of public location in the Twin Cities. And there had been this dust up at a public place between, and there were a lot of uh, upset members of the communities of color, understandably. And there was a young white woman who got caught up in something that someone she supervised did. And she didn't do it. She fired the person who did the inappropriate racist thing. But she's a white person. She ended up being targeted on social media. And she's she wasn't 60. She was like 27 years old, right? So she's there's going to be this public meeting. And these other facilitators came in. And I saw a young, a young white woman who was one of the facilitators. There was a facilitator color and a young white woman who was the co-facilitator. And they came in and started talking to the staff about what had happened. And I saw this young white woman who was the facilitator turn to that young white woman and say, whatever you do, make sure you don't cry. But did it in this way, it just pissed me off. And what I thought was, okay, she's being, you know, don't ask her not to be human. First off, there's a lot of ways to say, you know, it sounds like this has been really hard for you. I can tell you're emotional. And this woman had said, I've been targeted on social media. Media, I'm really trying to do the right thing, but I'm struggling because I've been targeted, but I wasn't the one who did it, but I fired, you know, it was complicated, right? 
But instead there was this, this is what I mean about the social justice high school. There was a very much a one-up personship of like, I know I'm the one working with the person of color over here. I'm the cool white person. Make sure you don't cry. And I'm just like, that. that's the kind of thing that, that bothers me is like, so first off, why shouldn't she feel her feelings? It would have been very different to say, I see, I see you're feeling a lot. I want you to know if you share that once we have a community of color in here talking about things, explain to her why that wouldn't be appropriate. But instead it was this kind of, I hope you don't cry. And so this, this way of like, um, I, I want us to feel things and I'm gonna push back that we need to feel this stuff, but then be responsible for how we feel it. And what happens too is then, so who's feeling all the feelings about racism, white women and not white men? So what I want to say to white men, what are you feeling? Not just what are you doing? Because that's the other thing is the feeling and doing, right? White people love to do things. We love to try to fix things. So I've had white people say, and I'm you know guilty because um, I'm white. I'm not trying to say it's not me. But I've had white people say to me, this is interesting. This one white guy said, this is interesting. Oh, thanks very much. Halfway through my training. But just tell me what I need to do. And I said, okay, you know, if if, it, if getting rid of racism was about a really good to-do list, we'd have done it. It's not about a to-do list. I need you to sit with things. I need you to feel things. I need you to be confused, be scared, be hurt, be angry. All the things that folks of color are feeling every day. I need you to feel it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Get Uncomfortable. We really hope that you enjoyed the show. Now, this is part one of a two-part conversation. You can tune in to the second part on Sunday, March 26th. Get Uncomfortable is created in partnership between Adam Smith and Rachel Hansen. Some ways that you can support the show include leaving a review anywhere you listen to your podcast, sending us an email, and our emails will be in the show notes, or subscribing to the show and sharing it with a friend. Until next time... Stay uncomfortable.